continue our study of this amazing book. Thomas Carlyle said the greatest book ever written. It's uh, absolutely beautiful. It is also very profound. It's also very relevant as we have seen. One thing we all have in common, I don't care what your religion is, I don't care what your background is, one thing that we've all got in common is that we've suffered. And some of you are in the midst of some significant suffering right now. And uh, we fear suffering sometimes. How, many, how often have I heard people say, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm really not afraid of death. I just, yeah, yeah. Woody Allen said, I don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, uh, that's the problem. Uh, so we've got all kinds of suffering in this life to face, and that's the reason this book is so relevant. It has spoken through the ages for 4,000 years, and we're privileged to study it today. Well, Job has been through unbelievable suffering. Here's a man who was uh, one of the wealthiest men in all the world. He was the Bill Gates of his own time. By the way, I, I was really feeling sorry for, for Bill. I saw how many billions of dollars he lost on Fortune magazine the other day. That's, that's, that must be terrible. Only a few billion to live on, I guess. But uh, Job was the, was the billionaire of his day, uh, very, very wealthy. He had uh, 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. 3,000 camels. Can you imagine that? Just looking at one camel is an amazing event. But think about having 3,000 of those beasts and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. Had seven sons, three daughters, and... Uh, he, uh, he was a very righteous man. And then you know the disaster came. The Sabaeans came, the Chaldeans came, took off his animals. Then a windstorm came and crashed the place where his children were having a little party. And they all died. And all he was left with was a grumbling wife who lived, survived. And then, that's, sorry, but that's the fact of the matter. That's a part of the story. Job is covered with boils all over his body. He's just, he's aching. He's aching from the pain of despair. You ever, have you ever been in despair at that level where your bones are actually aching? Uh, if you've been in deep depression, you, you would have some other descriptors for us. Now, that was what Job was experiencing. He had physical pain. He had mental anguish. Uh, life was about as miserable as it can get. So, you know the story, Job uh, is just sitting in the dirt. Uh, just grieving. He has three friends come along and they perform very well for seven days because they don't open their mouths. And they just sit there. And then Job opens his mouth and starts asking questions. Basically, why? And we all ask these questions. Why do I have cancer? Why do others get promoted ahead of me? Why, do I don't, why am I not any smarter or more beautiful? <laughs> uh, why are my kids on drugs? Why doesn't my wife love me? Uh, why am I not getting ahead? Why is my mother not a believer? I mean, we can just go on and on. Why, 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 why? And that was basically Job's question. Then his three friends thought they had an open door to give him a few theological answers. And for chapter after chapter after chapter, uh, we have these three men speaking to Job, and he's speaking back. They're in dialogue, trying to inform each other theologically. And as John Calvin says, the three friends argue a poor case very well. Job argues a good case very poorly. Then we get to Elihu. We studied two weeks ago, and we, and we saw that it's, it's likely, and I, maybe I'll say possible, that Elihu really didn't add anything. And a, a young man took a lot of words not to say anything additional. Now, one of you came up to me, and, uh, or actually sent me an email and said, you know, I've always heard Elihu was... Uh, really giving Job good advice, and he prepared Job for what's coming up today. Uh, and there, there are arguments, including Calvin, some others, who uh, Matthew Henry, who felt that way. So uh, it's possible to look at Elihu and, and see that. I think it's possible to look at it and see the other way, and I gave you my reasons for it two weeks ago, but I wouldn't hang my hat on it. But it seems to me that Elihu really wasn't saying anything additional. He was taking a long time to say it, and he, he did get ignored when God opens his mouth. So anyway, whichever way, uh, we've seen that Job really doesn't have any answers because Job gives a response um, uh, to Elihu and, uh, uh, and, or does he? No, actually he doesn't. Uh, but Job has not said any more words and 
Here it stands, just an argument among friends. What is the meaning of all this suffering? And I'm sure you've faced that as well. Then we come to the climax of this whole story, when finally God opens his mouth. And we're going to see here the real profound depths of Christian wisdom uh, when God opens his mouth. How do we think when we suffer? How do we deal with life's uh, difficult times? And let's look at chapters 38 and 39 in particular, uh, and then five verses out of chapter 40. Just, just read it through. It's a beautiful poem, and uh, we'll read it, and then we'll try to draw from it the nuggets that can help us in our own day. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are, who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? 
Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the fro with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample, trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, aha. He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food, his eyes detect it from afar, his young ones feast on blood, and where the slain are, there is he. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him accuse, let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Wow. Okay. Uh, two basic ideas here. The first one covers what God has said, and the second idea covers what Job has said. Let's look at both of them. Just two major divisions today. First of all, notice our God speaks to us. We are told here, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Our God speaks to us. The most important thing to Job, as you remember, was not the boils on his body. It was not the fact that he lost his wealth. In fact, his major concern was not even that he lost his children. His main concern was that it appeared as though God had abandoned him, that he had lost the favor of the Almighty that God had cut him off. That for reasons Job couldn't understand, he no more had intimate fellowship with the Lord. That was his chief concern. And we saw that when we suffer, our chief concern is revealed in our deepest sorrows. What is our deepest sorrow? And that was Job's. But here you have God opening his mouth and he speaks to his servant. God is continuing his relationship with Job and he always has. And one of the Worst things that can happen to us in our despair is that we think that God has abandoned us. In fact, Jesus himself expressed it on the cross, citing the Psalm of David when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there is a sense of being forsaken. Now, Jesus was, in fact, forsaken uh, because he took on our sins and he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. But oftentimes when we're suffering, we feel as though we have been forsaken. You remember how the disciples reacted when they were in the storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat and they aroused him and said, Jesus, don't you care? It's a typical sense that we have uh, when we are suffering. And here the Lord speaks to Job. He's showing Job we have a relationship. The discourse continues and we will continue in our fellowship. So our God speaks to us. Now notice when he speaks, number one, he does not answer us according to our folly. He says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Job does not understand how he could be facing such severe afflictions 
when he has sought so earnestly to serve God. That's the problem. Job doesn't understand how these evil things could be happening to someone whom he knows in his conscience was walking closely with the Lord. And he has a severe complaint. And Job, as he closes out his argument, is basically saying to the Lord, I want something from you. First of all, I want one of two things. Job is basically saying from the Lord, I want a bill of indictment. That is, I want you to tell me what is it I did wrong that brought all this evil. Or number two, I want you to pronounce me innocent. Give me one or the other. Give me a reason for this suffering. Give me a bill of indictment. Or give me a pronouncement of innocence. And what I want you to notice in this text is that God doesn't answer Job's question. Because Job's question was not the most important question. God does not answer us according to our folly. So when we're suffering, we sometimes have all these why questions, and you probably won't get those answered because they're not the most important thing. They're the most important thing in your mind. But it's really a way of complaining. It's a form of complaining. And God ignores the intellectual aspect of that question because that's not the main point. And notice that he, he does that with Job. And it's interesting, isn't it, that not only does God not address Job's question, but he also doesn't explain to Job what you and I know from chapters 1 and 2. Isn't that amazing that Job was never given that? The introduction to this story that enables us to understand what's going on here when the evil one comes before God and is looking for somebody to pick on. And God in the divine court says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil says, well, yeah, sure. You, you, you know, you want me to test Job, but Job's wealthy, he's healthy, he's happy, he has an agony wife, but that's a minor problem considering all the other things he's got. So shoot, of course he's going to serve you. And God says, take anything you want except for his soul. Now that drama we know all about. We know that's what's behind this is the sovereign God proving not only the glory of his salvation, but proving his servant Job and exalting Job in the midst of Job's sufferings. We know all this, that Job is being set forward as patient Job, as the man who will not curse God. And he ends up being this phenomenal figure that we look back on thousands of years later. Job knows nothing about that. He's completely blind to it. And God doesn't even tell him. Because you know why? We don't have to know that. God is going to tell us what we have to know. And that's what we want to focus in on. What do you have to know? What do you need to know? So he does not answer us according to our folly. But B, when you get to 3A, verse 3A, you notice... He says, brace yourself like a man. That is, he treats us with dignity. He treats us like the men that we are. God is treating Job as a reasonable person. He's saying, stand up, Job. Be a man. I made you the crown of my creation. I am going to reason with you. That's an amazing thing. There is no other creature in the animal kingdom to whom God says, stand up. I'm going to talk to you and reason with you. He says, brace yourself, Job. Stand up. Be a man. We're going to have a conversation. That's an amazing thing. So amidst all the array of his created things uh, in, on, on the earth, he says to man, stand up. And you know, you get this in Isaiah when God says to sinners who are his people, come, let us reason together. Isn't that an amazing statement? We're going to reason with God. And what's so tragic in our day of postmodernism when reason is being diminished and we're we're reconsidering whether reason is even necessary in our relationship with God and whether reason is really something that can be used in theology and whether theology has any value at all is it just men's thoughts i mean can you really know god through reason and therefore the answer of course is a is a doubtful or, or a no. And so we try to have a relationship with God without reason. I want you to know Job didn't have a relationship with God without reason. Isaiah didn't have a relationship with God without reason. And neither did David or Jesus or Moses or Paul. We're called to use our minds. God gave us minds for the very purpose that we can communicate with Him. And He made us sentient beings on the face of the earth that we may observe all of His creation and hear His voice and theologize and put it together and then give him worship 
and to have dominion over the entire creation through the minds that he gave us. And here he's saying, uh, brace yourself like a man. He begins to reason with him. And notice as he does, God doesn't apologize. He doesn't apologize for Job's sufferings. And there are many in this day who will actually teach that if you want to deal with your sufferings, you're going to have to learn to forgive God. There are evangelical professors who actually have said that. Now, in innocence of some sort, but ignorance, they may be thinking, well, what we really mean by forgive is that you have to let God go and not blame Him for anything. But that's not what the word forgive means. Forgive means to cancel a debt, which means God is in debt to me, and I'm going to forgive Him, which means I cancel the debt He owed me. That is a wicked place to start in your thinking, that God is your debtor, that He owes you something. God owes you nothing except the justice that could send you to hell. We do not forgive God. He owes us nothing. So God doesn't say, Job, I'm really sorry. Now, God may be sorry. There's deep compassion in God. But He doesn't ask for forgiveness. Job, I'm sorry, I had my back turned. I was dealing with this part of the creation over here, and I just didn't notice what was going on over there. Some say, uh, and this would be largely a non-Christian perspective, uh, this would be, for example, Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. He says, you know, God doesn't control everything. He can't control everything. It's out of His control. Some things He chooses not to control. That's not it. God doesn't say, Job, I'm sorry, that was really above my pay grade. I don't handle things like that. God doesn't apologize for not being powerful. He doesn't apologize for, for wreaking uh, havoc on Job. None of that. So please notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't explain even what we know and what saints hereafter would know. And He doesn't apologize. But what does He do? He treats us with dignity and begins to reason with us and see He redirects our thinking. He says, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job's last words were a demand to hear from God. And God answers, but not in the way Job is expecting. Job asks for one of these two things, the bill of indictment or pronouncement of innocence. But God answers Job's questions with questions. You know, if you ask, I asked one of my Jewish friends one time, why is it that Jewish people always ask questions? He said, what do you mean? God's always asking questions, and God's questions to us are far more important than our questions to Him, I'll guarantee you. And uh, you find this uh, certainly in Mark chapter 4 that I referred to. Lord, don't you care? What was Jesus' question after He stilled the storm? Do you have no faith? (laughs) That's a very important question. (laughs) You know, these guys are sitting there drenched terrified. They were terrified of the storm. Now they're terrified of Jesus. And he's trying to teach them, why don't you have any faith? (laughs) Just couldn't believe what they were saying. And what we find is that in the midst of our suffering, gentlemen, God has some amazing things to teach us. And he uses the Socratic method. And we suffer and he has a few questions for us. Where's your faith? Do you love me? Or will you serve me? Do you know me? And that's what's going to happen to Job. Job is going to get, I mean, I didn't count the question marks in the English translation of Job 38 and 39. How many do you think are there? Question mark after question mark. Question after question after question. And these are very important questions, all, of course, leading to the same conclusion as we shall see. But suffering, suffering does some wonderful things. Suffering like heat in a crucible, brings the dross to the top. And suffering brings your dross to the top. The impiety or the bad theology or the lack of faith that you had when times were good, all of that is now revealed. It's brought to the top so that it can be wiped away. So it has a cleansing effect. Suffering brings our impiety and our doubts and our, our suffering and our 
lack of trust. It brings it all to the top and reveals it for what it is. In our suffering, God gets our attention. And we're listening to it. And we're ready to hear His voice. And we're thinking at a much deeper level than we ever were before. We become much better philosophers, much better theologians when we're in pain. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now God has Job's attention. I doubt, I doubt seriously whether God could have taught Job anything of what Job is learning in chapters 38 and 39 when Job had seven sons and three daughters and 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. I doubt Job would have gotten these lessons. And Job is going to get God in a way that he never would have had him before. Not just because of the sufferings, but because of the sufferings in the context of Job's relationship with a God who will not leave him alone and will not stop revealing himself to him. So God redirects our thinking through questions. He enters into our sufferings and he reveals himself to us more deeply than we ever would have known before. Now, when we come to verses 4 all the way through the end of chapter 39, this entire section, what I've labeled D as in dog here, we learn that he points us to his creation and his providence. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And uh, as you go up through uh, verse 15, you get his speaking about creation. Then you get to verse 16 forward and he's talking about his providence. And he talks about how he not only made everything, but he's controlling everything. And you notice later on in chapter 39, he says, uh, Job, can you control the wild asses out there? Uh, we're not talking about any of you all. Uh, he's talking about animals. Um, but that is a good question. Uh, and he says, Job, can you... Uh, he says, look at verse 9 in chapter 39. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? No, it's a wild ox. It's a wild animal. He's not been tamed. Job, can you handle that wild ox? Can you be sure he gets fed? Can you give him joy? No, I do that, Job. I'm in charge of the wild ox. And he does what I want him to do completely. So you get God's providence there. And look at, I've just given you the 17 categories that I see here in this text, in this poem. And look at all those animals and things, the clouds, the constellations, the Pleiades, the Orion, the underworld, light itself, the weather, snow, lightning, rain, and all the wild animals. And he says, you know, this, this ostrich uh, is only compared to a stork. And the stork seems so stupid. Lays her eggs on the ground. This is verse 14, chapter 39. Let's them warm in the sand. And people come, or animals come by and crush them with their feet. This looks like a stupid animal. Looks like this animal has no use whatsoever. But then verse 17, uh, when she, uh, verse 18, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. She just passes right by the horse at <laughs> full speed. <laughs> Don't call my animals stupid. They're amazing animals. So God is saying, Job, where were you when I made all this? And Job, where are you when I'm running all this? Are you helping me govern the universe, Job? And here's the point. Job, you're asking me questions like give me a bill of indictment and give me a pronouncement of innocence and explain to me everything. And you're challenging me as though you knew all this, as though you knew how to set the stars in place, as though you knew how to put the earth in rotation around the sun, as though you knew how to control the wild animals in the wilderness. You're asking me as though we're equals. You're asking me as though you're creator and sustainer of the universe. Where were you, Job? Why are you talking like a man who knows everything? Why are you talking like a man who is in control of everything? Job, here's the point. I am the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and you are not. That's the point. So before we can even get anywhere on the meaning of your suffering, the meaning of this life, the meaning of our relationship, you're going to have to give me my job description and you're going to have to resume yours as creature and one who is completely dependent upon me. Now notice 
once again what, what God doesn't do in this text. He, uh, God does not say, Job, come away with me and fly my magic carpet and we'll take a little trip into a transcendental experience so that you can see things from another worldly perspective and just kind of lift out of this life and have a transmigration of soul. What you need, Job, is a deep spiritual experience. Nor does he say to him, Job, have you ever met Shirley MacLaine? She'll take you deep within and go into your soul and find that the real meaning of the universe is all packed in here your soul, that you're in touch with the universe. And if you just get in touch with your cosmic self, you'll find the meaning of reality and you'll be able to transcend the sufferings because you'll go deep within your own soul and find that actually matter is just an illusion. He doesn't do any of that. Here's what he says to him. As Francis Anderson, the scholar who wrote a commentary in Job, says, he just says to Job, Job, I want you to take a walk with me in my garden. And let's talk. You see this over here? You see this over here? You see this over here? These beautiful things in my garden? Come walk with me in my garden. I made all this and I sustain it. Isn't it amazing that Job doesn't have the gospel narrative that we have in the New Testament. Job doesn't have the word of the prophets made sure. Job doesn't have the tabernacle institutions of sacrifice and priesthood. Job doesn't have even the sacred communion of the fellowship of Israel, at least it doesn't seem so. He doesn't have all these immense blessings and privileges that you and I have in this day. He must be, outside of Jesus Christ, the greatest believer who ever lived. And what God is doing is just simply taking him through the garden of nature itself and reminding Job that he made it and sustained it. And this is what Job needs in this hour of suffering. It's an amazing thing. That around us, by inference, God is showing his handiwork to us and he speaks to us in his word about the meaning of that handiwork. Of course, this is the tragedy of people trying to rip out of your mind and conscience the usefulness of creation as a sign of God's being and His power. And the Bible tells us it is a sign of God's being and power, and we are to learn from it every day. It's amazing to me, I was talking with someone uh, just recently who does suffer greatly. And he said to me, uh, you know, in my suffering, I now look at flowers and I see them very differently than I used to. I see the birds flying in the air and they mean so much more than they ever did before. And I find that those who are suffering and those who are getting older, both, will find that God makes Himself known to them more and more in creation. Don't let the neo-atheists uh, who have been writing a lot of books lately, don't let them rip out of your conscience and out of your hands the beauty of God's creation. Don't let, them, don't let them take from you the comfort that comes from knowing that God has made it and He makes Himself clear to us every day. This is the kind of lesson that Job is getting. God is creator and sustainer. And that sustains us, brothers. So He points us to His creation and providence and teaches us the meaning of it. Now we get to the end of God's speech. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. And uh, this would be E on your outline. He calls for our response. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Okay. So in the midst of our suffering, we are pointed to the fact that our questions were not the most important questions. The most important question is, who are you and who is God? And what's the difference? God is creator and sustainer. You are creature, dependent creature. You were created by Him and you depend upon His sustenance for your every breath. And that's the most important thing to get clear. You owe Him everything. He owes you nothing. He is the Lord. You are the servant. He made you. And that's what the, it doesn't Psalm 100 teach us that, that it is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. So speak up, God says. 
now that we've gotten our job description straight, speak up. What do you have to say now, Job? Because every question you were asking me was presumptuous, as though you're creator and you're sustainer and we're partners in this and you deserve an explanation. So now, Job, we've gotten our job description straight, speak up. We come to verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord. We must respond with humility. And that's what we get out of Job. We don't get full repentance and restoration. That comes later after God's second speech. But after the first speech, what we get is humility. And that means, first of all, A, we acknowledge our unworthiness. What does Job say? I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? It's amazing how similar this is, isn't it? To the text in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is calling the disciples along the Sea of Galilee and He tells them to put their nets in and Simon answers, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Which is to say, Master, you're a wonderful preacher. Tremendous rabbi. And I hear tell you're a pretty good carpenter. I'm the fisherman. <laughs> We've been at it all night. Uh, we haven't caught anything. Uh, sounds like Peter is hinting, Lord, this is a little annoying. <laughs> you're, you know, it's fine. Preacher, you're the preacher. You deal with your preaching. I'm the businessman. I'm making the money for this operation. Just let me handle business. Uh, I'm the fisherman. But Peter goes on to say, but because you say so, <laughs> I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. <laughs> so Peter says, I'm the fisherman, Lord. <laughs> and the Lord tells him just to put down his nets in the middle of the day when fishing's terrible. And they have so many fish, it almost wipes them out. <laughs> so they signaled their partners. And they filled so many bo the boats and they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It's amazing how when we get our job descriptions straight, that we find out that all of the stuff we were thinking was entirely inappropriate. We were coming at this wrongly. And we just simply say, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? Now, let's look for a moment at why... Job and we are unworthy. What makes us unworthy? What makes us unable to speak to him in, uh, in a way that makes us his partners or parallel with us? First of all, we are creatures. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. He is the cre creator, we're the creatures. So we're unworthy to pretend that we have equal knowledge or equal power or equal rights. We don't. We're, we're made by His hand. Secondly, we are sinful creatures. So not only were we made by Him and therefore we must, we're the potter, He's the, uh, he's the potter, we're the clay. But we are rebellious creatures. We committed high-handed treason against the one who made us. We were already completely in debt to Him, and now we are unworthy because we've sinned against Him. Thirdly, we are redeemed sinful creatures. If we put our trust in Christ this morning, gentlemen, we have been bought twice. We, we owed Him our very selves, everything about us, because we were creatures. Now, in the midst of our, of our rebellion, He has redeemed us. He has shed His blood on the cross for us. We've been purchased. We belong to Him again now, twice. And we're completely unworthy because we've been loved way beyond any love that we could ever return to Him. We're always in debt. We could never pay back what He's done for us 
on the cross of Calvary. And Job knows that he has a redeemer. And he knows that being redeemed from his sinful estate, he could never pay God back. I am unworthy. How can I even talk to you? How can I even enter into a relationship? How can I even pray to you, Lord? How can we have a conversation? So Job comes to his senses, and he is deeply humbled. He acknowledges his unworthiness. B, we shut up. I put my hand over my mouth. There are many postures for worship in the Bible. We can stand and shout. We can fall on our faces. We can clap our hands. We can dance. We can sing. Uh, we can kneel before the Lord our Maker, as the psalmist says. There are many postures for worship. But here is a most amazing posture, and it's just this. Just putting your hand over your mouth, ceasing to speak back to the Lord, knowing that you're unworthy. You have nothing to say. That's the reason that we have this posture several times in the Scriptures. Psalm 46, that famous psalm from which Martin Luther wrote to him, A mighty fortress is our God. What does the psalmist say? Be still and know that I am God. Just be still and know who God is. That's an act of worship. In Habakkuk, we're told the Lord is in His holy temple. But let all the earth keep silence before Him. So simple silence is an act of worship when we are silent because we have a knowledge of our unworthiness and of His greatness as Creator and Sustainer and Redeemer. We shut up. Thirdly, we acknowledge our ignorance. Job says, I have no answer. And what we come to know is that we don't know very much. Isn't it true, gentlemen, as you, those of you who are students of one subject or another, or those of you who have been in business for a long time, or those of you who have been in one of the professions, that the more you carry out your business, the more you carry out your profession, the less you feel like you know. And it's not just that knowledge is expanding at this extraordinary rate, which it is, but it's that as you go into the field, you, you learn all these subcategories that you've never really mastered. And you realize the more you dig into it, the greater the more you become aware of the library of knowledge that you've not yet studied. It's overwhelming. But when you're dealing with God, all the more so, we acknowledge our own ignorance. We really don't know very much. And fourthly, D, we wait for God. Job says, I will say no more. Now, at this point, Job is not saying, I take back everything I said. Job has not quite gotten to that point yet. He's just saying, I guess if you put it in the most negatively, he, he could be saying, I've already made my case. But I think what he's really saying is, I'm going to wait for more. I hear what you're saying. I'm going to wait for more. And he gets more. So Job now is in listening mode, which is the mode for us to be in. And when Ezra grieved over the sins of Israel and they were great upon the return from Babylon, he just sat down, pulled his hair and beard out and wept and waited and prayed. And gentlemen, that's what Job needs to do. His friends had provoked him. We don't want to say Job did it unaided by human friendship. His friends provoked him to defend himself. But nonetheless, Job had been in a defensive mood, and now he simply is going to wait for the Lord. And when we wait, we come to know him. This is humility. This is what it is. And here is the best definition of humility I think I ever heard. Humility is being who we are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. Humility is being who we are in the presence of God, not who we are in the mirror, not who we are in somebody else's opinion, not what our mama told us about us, not what the press is saying about us. It's who we are in the presence of God. Nothing more and nothing less. And we've already seen that we're something terrific. God says, brace yourself. Stand up like a man. I'm going to reason with you. There's an amazing, dignifying statement about it. So don't be anything less than that. But then we also find we do not tell the ostrich how to live and we don't tell the horse how to live, and we don't sustain the universe. So remember what you're not in the presence of God. Remember what you are, remember what you're not. So 
Be who you are in the presence of God. Nothing more and nothing less. And there's humility. And Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He talked with God as his own friend. But he humbled himself before the Word of God. Sometimes with a struggle, but he got there. Until Jesus arrived. And of course, he was the meekest of them all. And Jesus said, come unto, me, you who, come unto me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. And those around you will find rest for their souls through your humility. Because your humility will lead them to the Lord. This is the reason Jeremiah said, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understand and know me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. The Lord delights in our humbling ourselves that we might know him. And here is what Job is getting, brothers, in the midst of his profound suffering. He is getting the knowledge of God. And it is, as Elizabeth Elliot said, I think I mentioned this at one point, in the midst of some great suffering she had endured, she says, when in accepting what God has given, God gives himself. So when he has shut our mouths and we acknowledged his sovereignty over all things, his right to do all things, and of course his love for us in all things that we don't understand. It is in accepting what God has given. God gives himself. And that is what Job gets. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I have no answer. I will say no more. Now in the few minutes we have left, I'd like for us to address this question, how can a man put these things into practice in the real world? Because in the real world... You're expected to take charge. You're expected to be smart. You're expected to solve problems. You're expected to be proactive. How is humility going to work in the marketplace? How is humility going to work in these professions that are very demanding and need strong men to step forward and assert themselves? How are we going to be humble in a sophisticated society that almost demands that we put ourselves forward as competent and capable men in such a sophisticated world? Well, I'd like to suggest how this might work today as you go out into that sophisticated world. First of all, put God first. Empty yourself of self-assertion, self-justification, self-glorification, self-gratification, self-aggrandizement. You acknowledge that you really don't know much, you can't control much, and you don't deserve anything. And furthermore, we go out serving Him, exalting Him, listening to Him, obeying Him. He's the number one being. He's the number one item on our agenda. In fact, He is the whole agenda. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. And you live your life with God as creator and sustainer of the universe, who alone is to be vindicated, who alone is to be justified in my conscience. I don't have to justify my sufferings. I don't have to explain why bad things are happening to me. What I need to be sure I'm explaining is that God alone is great and sovereign and good. And I go out with that mission in my heart. And I put Him first. And I'm telling you what, if you do, everybody around you is going to know something is different. Something's different between you and the guy who doesn't know God and continues to argue and complain. There's a settleness that comes to a humble man. And there's a confidence that comes. It's a, it's a self-confidence, but it's not a confidence in your flesh. It's a confidence in God that you have taken into your very being. And you are sufficient for these things that face you today. Not because you're so smart or good-looking or handsome or well-educated. You are sufficient because of His all-sufficiency, and He lives in you. You put God first. Secondly, you put others ahead of yourselves. And, and Paul puts this in a powerful way when he speaks about the humility of Christ. You know, the, who being in very nature, God considered not Himself equal with, uh, with God, but emptied Himself and took the very nature of a servant. But the verses before that, when he says to us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus and so on. So we consider others' concerns as well as our own concerns. We take these to heart. In a humble man, there's a kindness and a gentleness and a fairness and an integrity that marks that man. And that comes because we're living before the face of God and He has spoken to us. He has thundered to us out of the storm. I am God and you are not. And we have lowered ourselves from demigod status to servants and sons of the living God. And thirdly and lastly, we acknowledge our limitations. We don't know much. We don't control very much. We don't deserve anything. But we know God. So rein in what you think you know, what you think you're able to control, and put your trust in the living God. That's what Job was getting. That's what he got out of his sufferings, was a big dose of the living God who loves us and gave himself for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your revealing yourself to us in creation and in providence and especially for revealing yourself to us in the life and death and resurrection of your own son, Jesus Christ. For as Job had cried out for a mediator, you've given us a mediator. And in the face of Christ, we see again your greatness, your glory, your omniscience and omnipotence. And in the face of your greatness, Lord, we bow down before you and acknowledge our lack of knowledge, our lack of control, and our undeserving status. Lord, in the midst of revealing yourself to us and having humbled us by your word this morning, grant to us the joy, the glory of knowing you. For you, O Lord, are our joy, our delight, and our reason for being. And we go out to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you real good.